morning, my name is Brad, and I'm part of the pastoral team here at Jericho Ridge. And uh, if you're new or visiting, it's great to have you with us this morning as we continue in our summer series. Uh, we've been away for a couple weeks. I was uh, speaking at a camp on Vancouver Island. I know we have a number of our young people that are headed to camp as leaders and as campers and counselors over the course of this summer, so be praying for them. And uh, we also had a great opportunity to spend it uh, with both sets of our family. So hopefully you've been able to enjoy some of your summer, and we're glad you're here with us as we continue in our teaching time in 2 Samuel, the 10th book of the Old Testament. And at the start of July, we started in this teaching series. Start of July seems like a long time ago to me. I don't know about to you. And we started in chapter 1. And in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, we learned about the death of Saul, the very first king of ancient Israel. And Saul and David had been vying for authority and for power. And we learned about the death of Saul and the death of Saul's son, Jonathan, in a battle against their enemies, the Philistines. And David, you might remember, uh, in 1 Samuel, which we did last summer, was the shepherd boy who then began to rise to prominence as uh, God began to uh, give him more and more authority in his life. He slayed the giant Goliath, which brought him into the public sphere, and he began to go into Saul's service. But Saul became jealous and, remember, tried to kill David numerous times. But David survived, and in fact, David had opportunity to repay Saul, but he chose not to do that. But when we move into 2 Samuel, we begin to see the lens uh, shift and focus on David's life. And so as it does that, it actually shifts away from Saul's life and Saul's family. But there's a little episode that happens in 2 Samuel chapter 4 that I want to highlight for us. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, we learn about that the news of Saul's death in that very first episode that we focused on in chapter 1, when the news of Saul and Jonathan's death reached the royal residence, panic broke out. And they thought maybe that David and his whole army was going to come in and kill all of them, get rid of all of the evidence of a former dynasty, someone who was the king, because that was the custom in those days. But complete panic breaks out. And in 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, we learn that one of the things that happened was uh, that a nurse who was caring for Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son named Mephibosheth, she picked him up and she began to run away from the royal residence and she began to flee for her life and for the life of this young child, a five-year-old boy. And as she did so, she tripped and she fell and Mephibosheth was injured in that fall to the place where he became lame in both of his feet. And so Mephibosheth grew up from the age of five into his young adult life being crippled. And we see this when our teams go down into Guatemala, where about 20% of the population has had an accident of some kind or has a disability from birth. And as we work with them and distribute wheelchairs, it's incredible to see their lives change and transform. But Mephibosheth didn't have access or opportunity to any of those things. And so he grew up lame in both 
feet. And at that time in history, just like in Guatemala, just like in our work in Africa and different parts of the world, people that are disabled in any way physically are treated differently. And in that culture, it was shocking to see how people were treated. They were the lowest of the low. If you had a physical disability of any kind, you were not able to provide for your family, whether it was working on the farm, in the family business, and so you were just basically either abandoned or you were shunned, pushed out of the family, out of the culture, hidden from view, and just pushed away in every way imaginable. And so Mephibosheth, though the first five years of his life, he grew up in, as a grandson of the king, an heir to the throne perhaps. Ever since that accident and ever since the death of his grandfather Saul, he's grown up completely marginalized in his culture. And we learn that simply because of his physical characteristics, he was pushed aside. Now, to help us illustrate this, do you guys remember the game uh, Guess Who? Who's ever played the game Guess Who? All right. All right. Some of you are probably, some of you kids are probably pretty good at this. Okay, so Guess Who? The basic premise of the game, it's like a mystery game, right? So you're trying to guess the identity of a mystery person by kind of identifying characteristics. So there's two teams that we split up into. So uh, instead of me being just rude and just inviting one person up here to play against me, we're actually going to do this all together, all right? So we're going to split just straight down the middle, two teams. So we'll have uh, this side will be one team, and this side will be another team. And actually already sitting amongst you is your mystery person who is not going to reveal their identity in any way. I know who they are. So the way that Guess Who works is as a team, you work together and you ask the opposing team questions. Well, you'll actually ask me the question and I will tell you the answer from the opposing team. And uh, so the way it works is then with the card game, like the Guess Who board game, let's say uh, I'll give you some sample questions. So one of the sample questions is, this is a big hint by the way, uh, is your person a, and this you have to ask yes or no questions, is your person a girl? And then I would say either yes or no. And then if the answer is yes, the person is a girl, then all of the boys and the men would sit down, okay? All right, so that's how then you begin to identify. Then you begin to ask identifying characteristic questions, right? So like what would be, kids, what would be some guess who questions? You're going to have to help the adults here with this. Shout them out. What's some good guess who questions? Is the person wearing glasses? That's right. Yeah, some guess who ones. Yeah, I think in guess who they have hats. That's true. What else? Can you see their teeth? Okay, well, that one we're going to disallow because the person can, you know, live. They can actually change that up. So that's, a, that's an interesting one. Yeah. What else? What are some other guess who questions, right? Are they over 20? Okay, well, that one I might have to make some sort of guesstimations on. So, yeah, yeah, okay. All right, all right. So... What we will need you to do is I'll need everyone to stand up. All right. So remember, you'll ask me the question. So you guys might want to work together a little bit on, on your questions, okay? And figure out uh, how you're going to ask them, all right? So uh, why, don't we have, why don't we have this side of the room go first? Can you guys agree on a question that you might want to ask? 
Okay, so what is your question? Is it a girl? No. So everyone who is a girl on this side of the room would be seated, all right? Okay, everyone else would stay standing. All the guys would stay standing. Okay, all right, so now this side of the room, you're going to ask a question, all right? What's yours? Okay, same question they say. So the question is, is it a girl? And the answer is on this side is, yes, your mystery person is a girl. So all of the men would sit down on this side. Yes, all right. Okay, so it's still about even, I think, in terms of the number of people. Okay, this side, what's your next question? Do they have brown hair? No, they do not have brown hair. So everyone with brown hair can be seated. Uh, Kevin, I don't know, you're... <laughs> but you don't have brown hair, so... <laughs> That's okay. All right, fair enough, fair enough. All right, all right. So this side... Same question. Do they have brown hair? Yes, they do have brown hair on this side of the room. But some, yeah, I know, some of them color their hair, so that's a little bit of a tricky question. Okay, all right. So everyone, people with brown hair on this side should still be standing if you have brown hair. And if you do not have brown hair, you should be sitting, okay? All right. All right, okay, what are you going to ask them over here? Now we're getting... Uh, no, they are not wearing shorts. So everyone here wearing shorts can be seated. Oh, okay, we're getting closer. All right, you guys? Uh, yes, they, they do have glasses. Yes, they are wearing glasses. Yes. So everyone who is not wearing glasses would be seated. Did you guys get anybody? But this is glasses of all types, right? This is sunglasses. This is glasses of all varieties. So anyone who has glasses on would stay. Okay. All right. All right. Okay, what are you guys going to ask? Are they under 20? Ooh, I don't know the age of some of them. Are they, are they old? <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to disallow the question. Because it puts me in a bad situation. Okay. Two shirts. Oh, uh, no, they are not wearing two shirts. So, Josh, you can sit down. Okay. All right. What are you guys going to ask? <laughs> Is it? You can keep, you can just start guessing, actually. That's the thing with, with guess who. As soon as you feel like, you can just start guessing. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, right. No, they do not have short hair. So that eliminates a few of you. Longer, yeah, longer than my hair. Yeah, 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 longer than my hair. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. What do you guys want to ask? No. It is not Justin. Okay, so Justin would sit down. You guys can just start pegging them off one at a time. This is how Guess Who works. Just psh, psh. Is it Ruth Ellen? Yes, it is Ruth Ellen. <laughs> All right, good work, good work. And on this side, it was Curtis. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, good work. Good work on the Guess Who. So, in the Guess Who game... That was sort of an, a way of getting at 
through physical characteristics, trying to isolate and identify a mystery person. But think about how Mephibosheth would have felt in his growing up experience, his whole life. People are asking him questions to try and get at his identity. Hey, um, aren't you a member of the former royal family? Yeah. Uh, is that family Saul's family? Yeah. Who's asking? Well, are you physically disabled in some way? Yeah. So people are always trying to figure out and ask and identify who he is, singling him out. But somehow, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we read about the fact that Mephibosheth was able to scurry away to the far side of the Jordan River, and he was able to lie low for a while, where maybe, I don't know, maybe people weren't asking so many identifying or prying questions. He was following Saul's death able to just lay low, thinking maybe the world would move on and forget about little old him. No one singling him out, maybe not asking too many questions about his backstory. And that strategy seems to work out for him for a little while. But later on in 2 Samuel chapter 4, we find out that one of his uncles, Ishbosheth, who became king of the northern kingdom, was killed, was murdered. And maybe Mephibosheth begins to lose a little bit of sleep and think to himself, hmm, they're coming for Saul's dynasty again. I wonder how this is going to work out for me. Then in chapter 5, we see David has become king over all of both the north and the south. And maybe Mephibosheth gets a little more nervous at this point and thinks to himself, David's now the king of the area in which I live and he has the resources to come after me if he so chose. I wonder if he's going to start asking questions. I wonder if one day someone's going to discover who I am and where I'm living. I mean, David's got the whole nation now. He has the reach to find me. But years pass and nothing happens and maybe the game of guess who seems to be over and dies down. Maybe part of this is because what we've been learning about David's life in 2 Samuel chapter 5. David's been occupied with some other projects. In two weeks ago, uh, Mike led us through the exploration in 2 Samuel of David, working to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And then last weekend, uh, Pastor Jeff Renault, guest speaker, explored David's desire to build a temple to the Lord in Jerusalem, but how God said no to that request. But David was busy assembling and prepping the materials for his son to do so. And so now we come to 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And David is kind of finished with his summer projects, and he sits back, and he starts in chapter 9, verse 1, and says, one day David asked, is anyone from Saul's family still alive? Uh-oh, here's the question. But look how he asks it. Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Remember, David and Jonathan were best friends. So David asks around, and he finds someone who used to work for Saul by the name of Ziba. And David calls him in, and then the king asked Ziba, Hey, Ziba, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? Verse 3. If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. 
So David has Ziba do some digging, and he discovers that Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, is alive and living on the far side of the Jordan River. So David sends for him. But see, Mephibosheth doesn't know the question that David asked Ziba, is anyone alive so that I can show kindness to them? Mephibosheth doesn't know about that conversation. He just thinks to himself, all of a sudden, maybe there's a knock at his door. And he thinks to himself, "Uh uh-oh, the phrase that he's been dreading for years, Mephibosheth, the king wants to see you. He's invited to Jerusalem. It's a long journey for someone who has a disability. We don't know how long it took, but if I was Mephibosheth, I would be nervous the whole way wondering, what am I going to find in Jerusalem? What does the king want with me? Why is he calling me? Maybe he's going to kill me and get rid of it. Remember, Mephibosheth's grandfather, Saul, was so uh, vicious to David, tried to kill him, and so maybe Mephibosheth is thinking to himself, it's payback time. My grandfather enacted all of these things on David, and now David is going to return that to me. But when he comes, look what David says to him in 2 Samuel chapter 9. When he comes to David, David says to him in verse 7, don't be afraid. I intend to show kindness to you as a result of the friendship that he had with David. See, when Mephibosheth actually shows up, he gets the complete reversal of treatment that if I was him, I would be expecting from David. Instead of shunning him because of his disability in any way, David welcomes him. Instead of killing him because he's a member of Saul's family and all of the rotten things Saul did to him, David says, I am going to show kindness to you. This is an incredible picture for us of mercy and grace in action. David, David has all of the authority and all of the resources necessary to wipe out any of the former members of Saul's family who are still living. Maybe Saul's family is kind of scheming and plotting, one day we can get the throne back from this David guy. And David would have the opportunity here to end all of that and say, we're done. I'm just going to cut off any of Saul's descendants. But instead, he spares his life and says, instead of killing you, I'm going to show you mercy and grace. I'm going to show kindness to them. And David actually says, I'm going to show them not just kindness, I'm going to show God's kindness to them. A picture of God's mercy and grace. See, David not only welcomes Mephibosheth, he says, don't be afraid. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. And I will give you all of the property that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And this is not a small uh, way of demonstrating mercy and kindness to him. 
I mean, Saul had massive chunks of real estate that he owned as the first king of Israel. So much so that David actually instructs Ziba, Saul's servant, to take care of it. And Ziba has 15 sons and then servants on top of that, 20 servants on top of that. So David says, this is how many people it's going to take to look after all of this land. So we're not talking about like a single family home here that David's just given Mephibosheth. He's saying to him, I'm restoring to you massive, massive wealth to Mephibosheth that he doesn't deserve or does not own in any way. It'll take 25 families to look after this land. David isn't just merciful. David is generous in showing kindness to Mephibosheth. He's generous above and beyond anything that's necessary. See, one of our core values here at Jericho is generous living. And sometimes when I hear people talking about it, they think, oh yeah, that's about money. Generous living is, is related to our finances. And certainly that's an aspect of it. And certainly David was making a generous financial transaction here. But when we talk about generous living as one of our values at Jericho Ridge, this is the way that we express it. We say this, generosity touches all aspects of our lives, our friendships, our service, our time, our gifts and our abilities, and our material resources. See, generosity isn't just about money. The way that David expresses this generosity is he invites Mephibosheth back into relationship with him. Not just, yeah, yeah, have some land and get out of here. I never want to see you again. Go live on it. Don't bother me. And if your family ever tries anything, I know where you live and I will come for you. He says to him, no, I'm going to give to you and restore above and beyond anything that you're capable of managing and I'll give you all the help and assistance you need to do it. And I want you to stay here with me and eat at my table. Not just Mephibosheth, but look in the text. It says his son is also invited. And so the text says from that time on, in verse 11, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem, and he ate regularly at the king's table. In one day, with one word from David, Mephibosheth's life is completely transformed. He goes from being an outsider, a person who is shunned and marginalized, to eating at the center of it all, at the king's table and being treated like one of the king's own children. He goes from having nothing to having everything. He goes from not having a family to having a family. He goes from being despised and rejected and carrying shame and guilt because of his family's lineage to being invited to participate in David's family tree. A person who has an inheritance and a family. And friends, this is a picture 
of how God treats and thinks about you and me. You see, David's actions mirror for us the actions of the Father. It's a picture for us of how God works. God, the scriptures say, even in one of David's own writings, prepares a table for us and invites us to come. Invites us to the table of the king. Invites us into relationship with him. And maybe for you here today, when you think about that, you think to yourself, you know, I've never actually said yes to that invitation. Never actually considered actively what it would mean to be in relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What that would actually look like in your life. Maybe for you, you're exploring and you think, you know, I've been around a little bit. I've asked some questions, but I've never actually said yes to Jesus and that invitation that he opens to the banquet table, to relationship with him. Maybe today is your day to say yes and respond to Jesus. Maybe God, it's like God is picking up a plate and saying, you know what? It's your choice. I'm going to hand you. I've set a place for you at the table. And I want you at the table. I want you to be my son, to be my daughter. I want to have that relationship with you. But you have to say yes to that. And you have to be willing to come. And maybe today is your day. And maybe as we respond in a few minutes in worship, in song, and Ron and the team lead us through some songs that picture that for us and use language of a banquet, of a feast, of an invitation, maybe you say, you know what? Today is my day. I want to say yes to Jesus. If so, we'll have people available. Megan and I will be over at the side, and we'd love to come and pray with you. And you can take your seat at the table. So I don't want you to leave today, friends, without making that decision. It's the most important decision that you will ever make in your life to say yes to the king's invitation. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what, I've said that yes to that before. You know, I've said yes to God. But maybe for you, you're living with a nagging sense of guilt and shame. Maybe every time you come to sit at the table, you think to yourself, you know what? I don't know if I belong here. Yeah, I look around a place like Jericho and I see all these other people. They seem to have it together. You know, they seem to be really in their relationship with God and other people. But I don't feel that way. I feel like there's things that in my life, if somebody knew about, they knew the real me, they wouldn't want me sitting at the table with them. They wouldn't want me sitting in a row with them, worshiping together. They wouldn't want me in a small group with them if they really know who I am. Your guilt and your shame wells to the surface every time you come to the table. Maybe it's an area of hurt in your life that you need to ask forgiveness for or grant someone else forgiveness. Maybe for you it's a habit and you just, no matter how many times you try and you try and you try, you just can't actually kick it and get over it and you're just trapped in a cycle that feels like it'll never end. And so every time you come to the table, every time you show up on a Sunday morning, every time you open your Bible, that voice of condemnation says, what right do you have to be here? 
you who just did X or just did Y. Again, how many times is that this month? How many times is that this week you've lashed out in anger? How many times have you visited those sites? How many times have you spoken that way to a brother or to a sister? How many times have you allowed that bitterness to grow in your heart towards that person? You don't belong at this table. And every time you come, those thoughts of condemnation and guilt and shame well up in your heart. Every time you get in an environment like that, you feel that guilt and shame will disown you. And if you actually, people actually knew, you wouldn't have a place at the table. You feel like an imposter, like you don't belong. And you know what the truth is? The truth about this table is that none of us belong at this table. None of us get here because we're so great or we pulled ourselves up to a place in our lives where God looked around and said, oh, you're doing such a great job. I'm going to invite you into my family. None of us belong at this table because of what we've done. In fact, the opposite is true. Because of what we've done, we don't deserve a place at the table. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, it is not by works of righteousness that we've done, not by great things that we've done, that God has saved us, but according to his mercy. It's because of his mercy and his grace that God has extended an invitation to come to his table. You don't get a seat at the table because of what you have done or not done. You were invited because the king says you are in his child. And I'm sure with Mephibosheth, I'm sure as people came in to eat with David at the king's table, there might have been some backroom conversations going, do you know, David has a person who is crippled eating at his table. Can you believe it? He would let someone like that eat with his sons and his daughters. I mean, can you imagine? And I'm sure David had to have some conversations with people to say, you know what? Mephibosheth is here because I have invited him here, not because he deserves to be here. He's here because of me and what I have done, not because of him and what he has done. And the same is true for you and I, friend. This table is a picture for us of how God's mercy works if we choose to let him because mercy triumphs over judgment. Triumphs over your addictions, your hurts, your hang-ups, and the chair is yours. The place is set. If you're a son or a daughter of the king and you've said yes to Jesus, God invites you to come to the table. But you might feel like Mephibosheth. Look what Mephibosheth says to David. He says to him, who am I that I would even be able to come? Who is your servant that you would even show kindness to a dead dog like me? But the king still summoned him. The king still invited him to that place of mercy. And maybe today, as we worship in song, you just need to respond to God's invitation of mercy. And you can do that in a number of ways. You can just pray where you're at. You can be seated. A lot of times what I'm learning and finding for me is that my physical posture indicates something about the condition of my heart. And so maybe for you today, you actually want to experiment with a different posture 
in response in worship. Maybe you just want to open your hands to receive as a way of saying, God, I want to receive more of your mercy and grace in my life. Maybe you want to actually kneel and demonstrate a different physical posture of repentance and saying, God, I need to walk away from some of those hurts and habits and I want to receive your mercy and grace again in my life. Maybe you want to come for prayer and we'd be happy to pray with you about anything that's going on in your life or someone that's struggling around you. One last thought and application. Maybe you're here and you say, you know what? I'm a recipient of God's grace and God's mercy. But friends, one of the amazing things about that is that God gifts us with his grace and his mercy so that we can demonstrate it to people around us. We've already sang about that this morning, that our role as a church collectively and as individuals who name the name of Jesus is to demonstrate and multiply the love of God to people around us. And so there's lots of ways that you can do this in practical ways. One of the ways is maybe kids, for you, you think about this week and look around and find somebody a little bit like Mephibosheth in your life and maybe in your neighborhood. Maybe someone in your neighborhood doesn't, uh, they're the kid that doesn't get invited over to someone else's house to play. Maybe they're the kid that when you're on the playground, everybody's playing together and that kid is just kind of off on the side or in the corner. And maybe an, an expression of demonstrating God's love to them would be just to invite them to come and do whatever it is that you're doing this week. And so keep your eyes and your ears open this week for someone who's maybe been excluded in some way and maybe you want to be the one that extends that invitation to them to come and to engage with what you're doing. Maybe you see them at the park and that would be a tangible way of expressing God's love to someone else. Just invite them to the table. Uh, as a church, there's corporate ways that this is happening all of the time. One that's going on right now as we speak, we have uh, Tyler, one of our elders, and Lindsay, one of our supported mission partners, working over in India. And they're working at a home uh, for women and girls who are on the margins. We commissioned them this, for this work. They're over there for a month. We commissioned them two weeks ago. And uh, this home is called the Mutki Mission. And Mutki means hope and liberation. And in a culture where women and these girls are marginalized, maybe today you say, you know what? I want to write this down and I'm going to pray for them. Put a reminder in your phone. I'm going to pray for Tyler and Lindsay and for Theo every day this week. Just take a few minutes and as God brings them to your mind, then say, all right, I'm going to commit to praying for them because they're there for the whole month. Maybe you want to come up and pray with us as a response team for them uh, while we're worshiping and responding together because this is a corporate expression of them going out into the world and demonstrating the mercy and grace that God has given to them, to people in practical and tangible ways. Maybe for you, you need to begin to think and plan already about spending uh, March break with our team in Guatemala distributing wheelchairs to people in need. So there's lots of ways that you can demonstrate God's mercy and grace. Another practical response is one that you see in your info sheet, and it's calendar-driven. This summer, we've been serving together at the House of Hope, which is a recovery center in South Langley. And so our last time is coming up on August the 22nd. And we haven't seen a lot of you out there, but maybe today you say, you know what, I want to demonstrate a compassionate response to those in my community in need. And so maybe you want to put that in your calendar and come out and serve. That's a family-inclusive service environment. You can come out. We do painting. We do yard work. We do it with 
not for these women. And it's an incredible experience to be able to learn and share alongside with them and hear some of the stories of what God is doing in their lives. And so maybe your response is to say, listen, Jody's organizing it. Her email's right in the info sheet there. So maybe during this time, you're just going to take out your phone and you're just going to email and say, Jody, I'm going to come on the, on the 22nd. I've just put it in my calendar and I'm going to be there to serve alongside of you with the House of Hope. And we're going to demonstrate God's mercy and grace to some of these women in our own neighborhood here. And so that might be a practical and tangible way that you can do that while we say and sing and respond together. And so uh, Ron and the team are going to come. They're going to lead us in uh, several songs of worship and response. And our practice here at Jericho, as I've detailed for you, is that we're going to invite you to respond in any way that you feel that God would move you. You might want to kneel. You might want to stand at some point. You might want to pray for somebody else around you that you know is going through a hardened season in their life. You might want to just demonstrate a responsiveness to God and to God's Spirit and say, you know, God, I want to receive more of you today. You might want to come for prayer. Megan and I will be over at the side as we do that. And so I'm going to invite you, if you'd like to stand with me at this time, and uh, invite you, I'll pray for us as we move into this time of response and responding to God in song. So Father, we thank you that you have uh, invited each and every one of us to your table. You've set a table for us. You're a good God who has set an invitation and you've gone into the highways and byways and have invited us to come, invited all who are willing to come to your table. And so, Father, today we want to respond to that invitation. We want to respond to it with humility, recognizing that we don't come to your table because we're worthy. In fact, we come only with a posture of humility because you have called us and we have responded in humility and said yes to you. And so if you're uh, here today and you want to say yes to that invitation, I just want you to raise your hands and make eye contact with me. We'll come and we'll pray with you and say uh, that's you're saying yes to God, being a part of God's family today. And the invitation is open. God, we want to collectively as a community respond also with humility and ask that during this time you would speak to us, Holy Spirit, young and old, men and women, about what it is that you're calling us to do in response, Father. How might we set a table for those around us and demonstrate your mercy and your grace to people. And so, Father, would you prompt by your 